Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. A living history production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello and thank you for joining us on Living History. Today we're heading back to a topic that uh, really fascinates me, the Western Front, particularly the Australians on the Western Front. But we're telling a story here that has a lot of Australian connections uh, and just a really famous story of the First World War, one of the most famous stories of the First World War. It's the story of the fighter ace, the Red Baron. And there's a lot of myth about this story. There's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the most controversial and, and argued stories of the, of the First World War. So I'm looking forward to exploring it in detail. And to help me do that is someone who's been on the podcast several times before. It's Dr. Aaron Pegram from the Australian War Memorial. Aaron, thanks for joining us again. Matt, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be on the podcast yet again. I think I, last time we spoke, I said you must be scraping the bottom of the barrel if you're, <laughs> if you're coming back to me uh, for yet another uh, dose of history. But uh, yeah, here we are talking about Manfred von Rick. Often the so-called Red Baron. Well, I, I certainly appreciate your modesty, mate, but I can say that the podcasts we've done uh, in the past have been some of the most popular. Uh, so obviously you're, uh, you, uh, you're know, you know your stuff and um, that's why you're doing such a good job at the War Memorial. People love hearing what you're talking about. But the Red Baron today is going to be um, you know, a good topic. We haven't really talked much about the air war on uh, living history. And we certainly, I don't think we've done anything on the Red Baron. So I'm looking forward to getting into this. And what I wanted to do, the reason I asked you to come on is that the Australian War Memorial has some wonderful items associated with the Red Baron. So I thought we could tell the story of Richthofen, the Red Baron, through some of those uh, wonderful objects that you have there at the Australian War Memorial. Indeed. Um, I mean, uh, I don't think there's probably a, a more famous personality from the First World War as um, as, as Manfred von Richthofen, who had the distinction of being the leading fighter race of the First World War, not just for the Germans, but of the entire First World War. He had 80 confirmed kills to his name, um, predominantly flying uh, uh, between on the Western Front between 1916 to 1918. Richthofen um, was the, the sort of the German scourge of the skies uh, for the Allied forces uh, during that period of time uh, and, and seemed invincible. Um, but he had the misfortune of being brought down uh, by, by ground fire and crashing in Australian lines um, where uh, on the junction between the 3rd and 4th Australian divisions who at that time were occupying positions around Morlancourt Ridge um, just outside of Corby, and um, the Australians uh, recognising the distinctive red Fokker triplane, as Richthofen has been famously associated with, um, and uh, stripped it for souvenirs. Um, they Everything from personal effects on Richthofen's body uh, through to pieces of the, the aircraft itself. 
Um, though, of course, there's, there's collections relating to, to Richthofen uh, throughout the world, but the memorial has probably one of the largest collections of items relating to Richthofen's death. Uh, and I think that's really important because there's, there's much more to the man than just his final flight, although uh, there has been much ink spilt debating, uh, of course, over the last 100 years, who killed Richthofen. Um, and, of, and of course, um, we'll get into that later on in, into the podcast. But of course, the memorial has quite a number of objects which uh, we uh, will discuss uh, as, as our chat unfolds. Tell me, as a historian, mate, these iconic chapters of history, you know, the one everyone wants to talk about, everyone's heard of the Red Baron. Do you, do you embrace those stories as, as a historian and enjoy the fact that you get to, to explore more angles of them? Or does it get frustrating and boring that, that you, you just have to roll out the same old stories? Uh, well, it's, it's really, it's a really good question. I mean, as, uh, as, a, as a professional military historian, I think uh, every historian worth his, his or her salt is, is trained in questioning those accepted myths and stereotypes. Um, uh, and I have a sort of a natural inclination to sort of uh, steer away from the time-honoured, cherished stories that sort of get trotted out every now and again. Um, and in order to, I guess, trying to find a new angle in in some of these stories, you, I, I, I think it's 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 healthy that we start challenging what we assume to be correct. Um, and uh, I mean, I'd, I naturally like to. I, I think that in relation to Richthofen, I think his uh, his his uh, his his confirmed kills, those eighty confirmed kills, the the uh, the Red Fokker triplane, and the man himself has sort of all become larger than than uh, the, the myth has become larger than the man that he the Richthofen ultimately was. So much so that there's some aspects of Richthofen's story that we don't hear so much about. Um, the fact that he may have been suffering a traumatic brain injury during the time of his final flight, or the fact that he one of his 80 kills was an Australian by the name of Jack Hay of Number 40 Squadron, Royal, Royal Flying Corps. Um, I mean, some of those unknown or lesser known aspects of Richthofen's story, I think, is fascinating. Um, whilst uh, looking into Richthofen's story, I think it was interesting to point out that during the war years, he wasn't actually known as the Red Baron. Um, in Germany, uh, through, towards uh, the latter stages of 1917, he was known as he, he published a memoir uh, during a period of, of, of leave. He was uh, Der Rote Kampflieger. Um, the French call him uh, Diable Rouge or the Red the Red Devil. Um, and to the British at the time, he was the Red the Red Pirate. Um, uh, so I mean, I think that's really quite interesting that this guy who who painted his aircraft bright red to sort of fuel his own notoriety. Um, had a, had a number of different names, but it seems that the the Red Baron, which we 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 know him through today, and also through that really horrible 1960s pop song, and then also his reference there in Snoopy. Um, I mean, um, that's that's all a post-war construction. So I like to think that just by studying Richthofen just a little bit, um, we sort of unpeeled some of the some of the layers of myth uh, to get to the heart of what the story actually was. Some of those popular culture references, I'm, I'm, I think I should do a whole podcast just on those at some stage because I did a Gallipoli podcast recently and I realised as I was discussing it with the historian and these elements of Gallipoli, I realised how much of it, how much of the popular story, even my own initial understanding of Gallipoli, was drawn from the 1981 film with Mel Gibson. And you'd mentioned a couple of things where the Red Baron is referred to, you know, Snoopy and the, the, the song from the 60s. I mean... 
I, I think it's actually I think a lot of what we know collectively about these about these famous chapters of history are actually drawn a lot from these popular culture references. Is that something that comes into your work as a historian? Do you have to weigh up public perception of the things they're seeing on TV and movies in comparison to what they should be reading in history books? Does it does that does that weigh into your your world as a historian, or are you simply reading archives and, and primary sources and, and forming good opinions? Uh, the answer to that question is is both, because historians always working in archives, looking at primary source material and secondary source material, trying to get to the kernel of what the actual story actually was. Um, but where historians uh, probably differ from journalists, I mean, well, the, perhaps we can probably um, uh, borrow or, or, or lend some uh, some credibility from journalists is is the fact of making stories relatable to the to, to the average public. I think historians sometimes get so bogged down into the minutiae and academia that they lose contact with the story that they're trying to communicate and their audience. There's no point writing a book uh, that's in dense historical scholarship uh, that's uh, catered for a readership of about three people within the, the relevant field. I think the um, historians can make their stories relatable by uh, communicating in, in, in sort of in relatively simple, easy way, uh, easy communicative uh, devices, talking on podcasts, for example, publishing more popular books, and also using those popular myths and stereotypes that people uh, are more familiar with and use that as a hook or a springboard to then launch into uh, aspects of the past which may or may not be the way in which uh, people most popularly remember them. And so Richthofen's a classic example. I'll have to say with the uh, with the Snoopy appearances of Snoopy uh, and, and also that gaudy 1960 song with the, by the Red Baron, uh, of the Red Baron, I mean, it makes light of the fact of, of Richthofen and his, you know, and his notoriety in the fighting on the Western Front. But uh, it also masks the harsh, harsh reality of aspects of his personality and also uh, just how devastating he was for Allied pilots flying over the Western Front. I alluded to the story of an Australian flying number 40 squadron who was Richthofen's 17th victim. His name was John Hay, um, Jack Hay from Double Bay in Sydney. He went to uh, Shaw, Sydney uh, Church of England Grammar School. And like so many men of a rel- relatively affluent background in Australia at that time, went over to England to, to, to gain his pilot wings and serve in the Royal Flying Corps, which he does in June 1916. And he's flying FE-8 Pusher Scout. Uh, over the Arras sector in in, in early 1917. Uh, number 40 Squadron uh, are engages in a duel with uh, members of Richthofen's, uh, Richthofen's Yasta over, over Lons. Um, and Hay is, is felled by Richthofen's machine. Um, Richthofen uh, engages uh, Hay at about a distance of about 50 metres. Um, this is actually the first time that Richthofen's flying in an all-red Albatross aircraft. In fact, most of Richthofen's uh, kills are accredited to him in, a, uh, in an Albatross D2, which, is, which Richthofen is flying on this occasion, the very first time the Red Baron is painting in an all-red, is flying in an all-red aircraft. Um, the aircraft, Hay's aircraft catches a light, and because the Royal Flying Corps doesn't equip um, its pilots with parachutes at that time, fearing that perhaps they may become less aggressive in combat or not bring back their aircraft, Hay is a force to abandon his aircraft midair at about 500 feet or 500 metres. And so Jack Hay, uh, at the age of 27, falls to his death. Uh, his body is recovered uh, by Canadian troops who ultimately write to, uh, write to Hay's uh, 
parents in in Sydney. And one of them says, I had to bring him in alive or dead. He put up such a magnificent fight. And um, some of the items that we have in the memorial's collection is uh, one of the temporary grave markers from Lieutenant John Hay. Um, he's buried uh, at a cemetery, at, at Air Communal Cemetery, not too far away where his aircraft uh, was brought down. And we have his pilot brevet wings. We have some small, uh, small items from from him. But of course, the brevet wings were, were on him when he um, when he ultimately met his end in 1917. You tell that story, Aaron, and it just it just reiterates there's a there's a massive contrast with the air war. We're so fascinated with the air war in the the First World War, the knights of the air, the gallantry of the Red Baron. But there's such mm. a savagery to it. The idea of going up in a flimsy cloth and timber plane and raking each other's aircraft up with machine gun bullets petrol catching a light, people falling to their deaths without parachutes. There's a horrific element to this fighting and the, the, the stress the pilots must have been under. You know, the, I, I think the air war in the First World War sums up that idea that it's, it's, it's you know, hours of boredom and minutes of terror is, is the definition mm. of warfare and it, it just must have been horrific. I mean, the, the, the movie in the, um, in the aircraft hall at the Australian War Memorial that Peter Jackson put together um, shows that brilliantly, the combat. Just the, the first time I saw that many years ago, I was... I was surprised by how little I understood about the barbarity of the air war. Is that something that you try to address in these stories of of, of Richthofen and the air war? Uh, yeah, I think so. It's not just Richthofen in the air war, but I think the the realities of air combat on the Western Front. And it wasn't just about these gentlemen who took to the skies and you know fought gallantly between nine to five and then clocked off and had beers in the mess afterwards. There there is a grim reality to combat in the Western Front uh, or air combat during this during this particular time. Um, further to, uh, I'll just say two more things about, uh, about Jack Hay. Um, many people who are listening from Australia will, be, will know of Hay uh, in the Riverina region of New South Wales. And um, that's the same family we're talking about. Jack's Hay, Jack Hay's parents and his family had been uh, prominent grazing families, uh, grazing families in the Riverina had established uh, you know, a significant grazing property in Hay, New South Wales. And Matt, you're from that area. You're very familiar probably with, with the town there. Um, but then also too talking about the just the the horrible realities of that air combat. Um, Richthofen in his memoir uh, Der Rote Kampflieger, he specifically makes mention of having reoccurring nightmares of the very first Englishman he saw plummeting from the sky, and it wasn't so much that seeing that it was being inflicted, he had done that himself. It was the realization that that perhaps may have has ultimately occurred to him at some point. It seems from the research I've done into the the flyers of the First World War that this kind of this this stress this this more than just stress a, a mind altering traumatic stress situation was part and parcel of being a pilot. Um, just the accounts you read of their drinking, their nightmares, it it, it just seems like all pervasive in these these accounts of these airmen. Is that something you've come across in your in your research into the airmen of the First World War? Yeah, look, no, my my uh, my research into the airmen of the First World War has always been fairly limited and targeted for relevant articles or displays. But I think a really good book that perhaps harnesses this is Michael Malkentine's uh, excellent book, Fire in the Sky, which looks at the operations of uh, the Australian Flying Corps uh, in, in in Sinai and Palestine, and then also the uh, the fighter and reconnaissance squadrons that are that are operating on the Western Front. And you're dead right. I mean, um, pilots themselves. Uh, encounter uh, what we would combat stress and combat strain not necessarily of engaging the enemy uh, in the skies over the western front but then also the dangers and perils of of flying at that time as you said aircraft are made of either dope, limon, dope doped linen and fabric um, you know 
tension cables or, or bits of plywood. And they're often um, parachutes, they're invented, uh, but they're so large and cumbersome that they ultimately affect the power to weight ratio within the aircraft at that time. I mean, these aircraft, um, at the start of the war, were, uh, aviation was still in its infancy. It was uh, manned uh, aerial uh, aviation had only been uh, had only had only been seven years old. Um, but by the end of the war, there's there's at least squadrons of aircraft. This rapid development of uh, aircraft techno- uh, technological development, where pilots are equipped with parachutes um, that. We now have aircraft that have the ability to fire through the propeller, then through the use of an interrupter gear. Um, then we also see the first uh, monoplane. So no longer uh, the aircraft, you know, two or three wings that we that actually start to see the first uh, monoplanes or even the first steel skinned aircraft. So there's a rapid development there through the, the cumbersome uh, lessons and losses uh, of, of, of aviation and, and the air war over the Western Front. Well, we'll get specifically to the Red Baron in a minute, which is the, the reason we're here. But just on that subject, it's something that comes up time and time again with the First World War. We think of the Second World War as huge technological advancements. We saw jet engines and, and you know all of the technology, the atomic bomb, everything that developed during the Second World War. But I think the First World War was an extraordinary time uh, of development. We're only talking a decade or so at the start of the war. It only been slightly over a decade since the Wright brothers had the first powered flight. And the advancement of aircraft, I mean, nothing sums up the technological advancements during the First World War like the development of aircraft. From the flimsy planes that were flying in 1914 compared to what we were seeing over the skies in 1918, just extraordinary. Uh, absolutely, and that's not just uh, that's not just specific to the air war on the Western Front. I mean, that's just combat more generally during the First World War, where we have technological advances um, in aircraft. We have, we see our first tanks. Uh, we also see uh, the development in 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 um, weapons such as poisonous gas, for example, um, and the various countermeasures. We see the rapid advances within medicine. The first uh, plastic surgery cases are you know are developed during the First World War. So with war comes this great technological leap and advancement, but then also too the uh, the process works the opposite way, particularly for frontline soldiers who engage in combat on the Western Front. Yes, um, they have machine guns uh, that are now portable and light and then can be used to as, as squad infantry weapons. Yes, they have smokeless uh, powder in their rifles and artillery pieces, but then also too you've got soldiers who are equipped with helmets and, and, and armour and, chain, and tank crews are wearing visors with uh, chain mail. And, and during trench raids, for example, soldiers are going into combat armed with clubs and daggers. So it's almost as if these are weapons that have uh, revolved back down into the Middle Ages as well. So on one hand, that technological advancement sort of moves forward into the future, but then also too for your, uh, for your frontline soldier and perhaps even sometimes too for your airmen, that process of evolution goes back the opposite direction. Well, let's talk about the Red Baron. Um, what, what, what I'd like is, can you give a, a very brief, just in a couple of minutes, just an overview of his career? Because as you said, you said quite, quite astutely at the top of the interview that too much has been said about his death and his last couple of flights. Let's talk about the Red Baron as a man and, and, and what led to his, well, fame. I mean, he was a famous flyer in his time. Let, let's talk about his story. History loves these characters who have these excellent rags to riches um, stories. And I can assure you that Richthofen is not one of them. This is a guy who's born into a very wealthy aristocratic family 
in um in in germany in in lower saxony called a little town called breslau which is now part of um poland in may 19 uh, 1892 and that family expected the men of that family to serve in the imperial german army with distinction now as a kid uh richthofen enjoys the usual pursuits as children of his of his background and ilk did at that time he enjoys gymnastics and horseback riding um hunting wild boar and elk and deer and birds and in fact the family um the family manor was was decorated with many of these different trophies that were on display throughout the house. Um, eventually, the family moved to a place called Schneidwitz, where Richthofen attended school until about 1903, and he enters the Prussian military school at, at Wallstadt at the age of 11. Now, could you imagine that you're beginning your military career in a school at the age of 11? I mean, it's a completely different world to i think that what you and i and most of the listeners that we uh, who are listening to the podcast have have sort of uh, have grown up with even military people even um even people who serve in the military would uh, would never be expecting to do so at age 11 no that's right i mean this is a military school and this is a school that's designed to to groom these these children into into a military career into a proud and established military career into the imperial german german army so Richthofen um, completes his training in 1911 and, and whereupon he's commissioned into a, a very highfalutin and very distinguished Ulan regiment um, at the out- and by the outbreak of war in 1914, he's, he's a young lieutenant in what is probably the most prestigious cavalry uh, regiment um, uh, at the outbreak of the First World War. So he's part of that Prussian aristocracy. He's very much of the school where he's gone to the right school, he's entered the right unit, and he's at the top of his game, even as a young man at the outbreak of war. Um, this regiment, Richthofen's regiment, um, uh, is, is usually, it's a, it's a reconnaissance regiment. This is, the, this is the German equivalent of the cavalry, uh, primarily used in, in, um, in, in, in a reconnaissance role, and, and which, is, which is what they do uh, in, in Russia, in France, in Belgium during the very opening uh, early engagements of the war. But believe it or not, um, you know, horseback reconnaissance has little place um, uh, on the Western Front, once the stalemate sort of settles through that sort of first winter of, of 1914, 1915, and the regiment becomes dismounted and somewhat ignominiously its troops, who have come from all these prestigious families, are relegated to dispatch runners, um, uh, you know, field telephone operators and all this sort of stuff. So Richthofen is somewhat disappointed by the reduced prospects of leading his men into into combat in this way, and so he transfers to the Fliegertruppen, which is the the, the German Army's uh, air service branch at that time. And around May 1915, and uh, he cuts his teeth after his flight training uh, as an observer, flying uh, reconnaissance aircraft, twin seater reconnaissance aircraft over on the Western Front. Um, it's very fortunate. Oh, then that that regiment then goes off, and and uh, Richthofen um, goes and sees some some a little period of a small period of service at the carrier pigeon section at Ostend in Belgium. And it's around this time that Richthofen has this sort of brief and somewhat sort of uh, surprising encounter with the the leading German airman of this time, Oswald Bolker, who inspires Richthofen to carry out pilot training uh, and become a, a fighter pilot, which he ultimately does. He ultimately, Richthofen... Um, becomes a pilot and he gets posted to Kampfgeschwader uh, Zwei, uh, which is a fighter squadron number two, and initially starts flying Albatross C2 twin-seater reconnaissance aircraft. And it's he probably does this against the French over Verdun. And it's around this time that Richthofen 
scores his first of 80, uh, or, or his first aerial victory. Uh, he shoots down a, a Newport scout over Verdun in April 1916, although um, because the aircraft crashed over, over French lines, it could not be confirmed. Uh, Rick Toffin's, that's it's actually uncredited to Rick Toffin's name. Um, Rick Toffin again crosses paths with uh, with Oswald Bolker, uh, who at that time in August 1916 was 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 actually searching for promising young fighter pilots or pilots to join Yasta Zwei um, or Yasta Two, um, which is uh, uh, Bolker's Bolker's fighter squadron wants to wants to find fit young capable young pilots as a, a premier fighter squadron at Vilu um, on the Somme front, which is not too far away from uh, from Corselet behind Pozier. Um, and there, Richtofen becomes a sort of a dedicated student of, of, of what they refer to as Dicta Bolker, which is the list of fundamental aerial maneuvers promulgated by Bolker as the axioms of pilot success. These are just basically some very basic tenets about what pilots should and shouldn't do in the midst of aerial combat, developed by Bolker himself, who at this point in time had been awarded the Port de Marit, the Blue Max, the Germany's um, t- uh, highest, uh, highest honor for bravery, had at least 30 kills to his credit. At flying uh, Fokker Eindeckers, the, the first sort of monoplane employed by the German Air Service at that time. Um, and also, Richthofen scores his first victory, you know, applying these lessons. He uh, flying an Albatross D2 on the 17th of September 1916, he brings down a British FE 2B um, pusher scout of, of number 11 squadron um, Royal Flying Corps over a place called VA Pluie. Um, so, this is kind of the first sort of iteration of where, where Rick Toffin comes from. He's, uh, like I said, he's no rags from Rich's story. He's from a wealthy family. He finds his way into the war via a very prestigious unit. And it's almost as if the war has transformed him into uh, a, a fighter pilot. And in this, at this stage, Rick Toffin is no different from any of the fighter pilots that are, that are in the German air service around this time. Um, but it's round uh, on the Somme front uh, as the, the fighting of the Somme and that Somme winter abates into the Battle of Arras where Rick Toffin starts to make his name. I have to say, um, Rick Toffin was present when, um, when Bolker uh, was involved in a mid-air collision uh, with a fellow pilot from Yasta 2 that, that ultimately killed him. And, and tragic though that was for the squadron and, and for the Imperial for Imperial Germany more broadly, um, Bolker's death did little to impair Richthofen's success because within three months, Richthofen's tally stood at 15 victories. I mean, this is a time, this is a period of the war where the Germans are starting to gain an aerial ascendancy uh, over their front. And, and certainly Richthofen's 80 kills are sort of uh, n- nice and neatly chunked up into these periods where Richthofen, um, where, where the Germans have air superiority. And Richthofen also doesn't sort of engage himself into a fight that he knows that he can't win. So it's about positioning and putting yourself into the right situation before engaging. British aircraft at this time... They were referred to as pushers. So it's ostensibly a, a bathtub fitted to a biplane where the propeller is, is at the back of the pilot. And that enables the pilot to fire a machine gun uh, unimpeded through uh, the front there. Because at this time, um, I think the, the RSC didn't actually have uh, a, a, a interrupter gears. So they couldn't actually have the ability to fire through their propellers. Um the Germans uh, had aircraft such as the, the the Albatross D2 at this time, which is sensibly a machine gun platform that had interrupted gears. All the pilot had to do was, was adjust the nose towards its target and ultimately fire its twin uh, its twin MGO8 machine guns towards the target. And ultimately, that's what happened. And that's how Richthofen racked up his first 15 victories. 
We should point out at this stage, Aaron, that to be an ace of the First World War meant you needed five victories. So it was obviously considering, to sh- and when you think about it, shooting, going up and shooting. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Down five enemy planes. That's a huge achievement at this stage, given the technology, given the skills of the pilots, the, you know, the nature of the fighting. To score five kills was an extraordinary achievement, which is why to be considered an ace, you had to have at least five victories. We're talking here about Richthofen relatively early in his career with 15 and then ultimately ending up with 80. It does show an extraordinary ability in the air, doesn't it? Without a doubt. And, um, I mean, Richthofen is very keen and very quick to adapt to this. And I think a lot of that comes back down to Bolker and those those axioms of pilot success. Um, but then also, too, I mean, it's no... It's no different from from Richthofen and his uh, you know his pastimes when he was growing up as a, as a child. I mean, he, this is a guy who's he's quite used to hunting. He's just as familiar as stalking deer through the forest of Schneidwitz as he is as in an aircraft over the Western Front. And then certainly, um, obviously, those trophies that that are adorning the walls of the family manor, of course, become uh, some. There's a somewhat similar transition as well. Um, not long after he racks up those 15 kills, uh, Richthofen brings down the leading British fighter ace of the war at this time, Major Lano Hawker of, of number 24 Squadron, who had been awarded the Victoria Cross in 1915. Um, Hawker and Richthofen had engaged in a 30-minute duel um, uh, over the Somme front, which ended when uh, Hawker's uh, DH-2 um, was trailed by Richthofen, and Richthofen managed to get off a, a fatal burst that that uh, that ultimately led with Hawker being shot in the back of the head. Um, now we talked about the sort of the, the the sort of saintly, knightly, gentlemanly conduct of the war. Um, the Germans did bury Lano Hawker, although his 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 grave has has now been uh, he, he remains missing. Um, but Lano Hawker. Richthofen did not attend Hawker's uh, funeral because Richthofen thought it was bad taste for the hunt to be at the gravesite of the victim. And it's quite interesting in the fact that Richthofen talks about hunters and victims in this in this kind of way. Um, but Richthofen did actually take Hawker's Lewis gun as a trophy and he hung it above his door to his quarters. And from that point on, Richthofen uh, kept souvenirs of the men and the machines that he had brought down over German lines to the point where he had a, a, a jeweler in Breslau in, in, in Germany make silver cups to celebrate each of his victories. Um, and each one of them was inscribed with the, the date of the engagement, the type of the aircraft, uh, and 
of that of his eighty victories, sixty of such cups were made, little sort of little um, little victory cups, um, and um, until the paucity of silver in Germany at that time sort of prevented um, more cups from being made, and Richthofen refused to have uh, more of those uh, cups made out of lesser metals because um, you know he was uh, he thought you know he thought he was better than that. Interestingly enough, the um, the Omaka Aviation Museum uh, in New Zealand, this is the Peter Jackson. Um, uh, inspired museum or funded museum that's in in New Zealand has a small collection of of some of those cups purporting to be from from Richthofen's including number 11 of that of Lano Hawker. What do you think Richthofen was like as a man? Is he someone that if we could teleport him through time and space you'd want to sit down and have a beer with today? He sound, he sounds aristocratic, he sounds removed from the common man. What what do you what does your research tell you he was like as a person? Uh I I, look, I think um, I don't think he would have been an easy person to sit down and have a conversation with. I think he would have been arrogant, aloof. Um, I think at the end of the day, I think he was a remarkable fighter pilot. But I think also to what fuels his uh, his professionalism, I guess, is that uh, is that sense of nobility. The fact that he's from an aristocratic background, but then also to the fact that he sees himself as a hunter. And he's in the very much in the business, not of buzzing around on the Western Front doing aerobatics, but he's he's very much in the business of of killing other men. Um, so uh, the Germans do indeed lord, uh, you know, Richthofen, or they come to lord him as a as a as a national hero. Uh, but I think um, I think you and I would struggle to sit down and have a conversation with with such a a guy hell bent on on killing uh, other men. I mean, spare a thought to the end of Jack Hay uh, of Number Forty Squadron, the Australian plummeting from the sky at five hundred meters. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's the harsh reality of it. Richtofen was certainly very good at, at what he did, but it certainly didn't make him a likable person. You mentioned the the cups that are in the collection of the museum in New Zealand, and I want to talk about the the items in the in the Australian War Memorials collection. Some of which I've seen. I have to say about the Red Baron. When, when I growing up in West Wyalong, I have to say that there was um, it was um, the, I, I remember an old veteran there showing me that his dad had brought him. You know, show he had a little piece of cloth in a frame, and you know that my dad cut this off the Red Baron on the Somme and off the Red Baron's plane. I tell you what, given the number of relics that come from this plane. It must have been massive. The, the, the sheer volume of relics that are purported to come from from Richthofen's plane. So I think that I think we should also start by saying that I assume a large quantity of things that say this definitely came from Richthofen's plane. Uh, that there's no way they could have. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Oh uh, yeah. Look, um, uh, we, we never say never. I mean, all these things are, are worthy of examination. But I think you're right. I mean, um, as time went on, Richthofen uh, becomes quite well known within Germany. He um, he is awarded uh, the Paula Merit. He's given as the, the he becomes the the squadron commander of Yaster Two, uh, and he, you know he starts painting his aircraft bright red and becomes the leading German air ace of the war. Um, I think that. Uh, you know, fast forward a hundred years, and that every sort of piece of red fabric purporting to be from an airman, a uh, German airman, over the you know, over the, from the Western Front, is allegedly from Richthofen. It says something about Richthofen's notoriety and fame. So much so that every German airman that ever took to the skies in France and Belgium between 1916 to 18 has ultimately become subsumed or kind of been uh, credited. Uh, 
to Manfred von Richthofen. I mean, there's some objects in the Memorial's collection of lozenge-painted camouflage, which uh, adorned some German aircraft in, in the latter stages of the war um, that have been donated to the Memorial in the belief that they're from Richthofen's aircraft. And I can assure you they're not. Um, there are gun sites, uh, field artillery gun sites, which, um, which have been, again, been donated in the belief that um, they were souvenired from it's the gun site from Richthofen's aircraft. I can assure you that Richthofen wasn't wasn't a didn't have any field artillery um, optics fitted to his Fokker triplane at that time, but somewhere along the line there probably is a tenuous link between maybe Richthofen, the location of that particular individual, um, or, or the donor, or their, their their particular soldier within their family, or even perhaps just a memory of this of someone talking about Richthofen and this being relayed onwards. But at the fundamental thing, I don't think that we should be sort of um, denigrating people in who maybe mistakenly in a belief in the fact that items that may be associated with the air war are linked to Richthofen, but it says something about Richthofen's fame of this time, which of course has transcended uh, over the past, over the next 100 years. And just to kind of get up to get up to speed and, and sort of get to uh, Richthofen's, I guess, final flights, um, you know, Richthofen, Richthofen's career soars afterwards. I mean, like I said, he uh, is appointed, uh, given command of Yasta II. He's awarded the Paul Le Marit, um, which he values quite highly. This is the German, German um, uh, Imperial Germany's top uh, honor for bravery. Uh, he gives gets given command of Jadgeschwader Ein, which is a or JG One. It's the hunting squadron number one, and this is a this is a formation that allows Richthofen to command not one but four fighter squadrons he by cherry picking the best and brightest of the uh, fighter pilots the Germans have at that time and uh, they referred to the Jadgeschwader Ein as the flying circus and they very much uh, travel in caravan via train to various parts of the German front to to gain uh, an aerial dominance over that particular particular front uh, and by June and July 1917, uh, Richthofen is flying uh, over over Flanders, um, where in 6th of July 1917, he receives a, a head wound in an engagement with um, FE2s of number 20 squadron over uh, Vervik in Belgium. And Richthofen makes a, a forced crash landing. His bullet has creased his forehead, um, and uh, he ultimately survives the, the, the engagement. But this is where I think Richthofen really starts to, to come undone. Physically, he has a bullet wound to the head, and it's some indication that perhaps that has caused a traumatic brain injury. Um, but then also, too, um, I think also the strain of aerial combat at this time is really starting to, to show, and Richthofen um, becomes notably disinhibited from, from this point onwards um, to the point where whilst he was convalescing in, in Germany in October 19, 1917, he, he laid his head on the dining table of a restaurant to display the gaping wound to his head. Now, that, that doesn't sound too aristocratic and aloof to me. That actually sounds like a guy who's really starting to struggle. Um, he was more irritable and he suffered from terrible headaches and uh, he really started to not pay attention to those pilot sort of axioms, those dicta bulker uh, axioms of pilot success that he uh, he had kind of learnt his trade with, but then also was instilling in the pilots of, of, uh, of Yad Geshvada Ein. Um, he returned to flying duties despite doctor's orders not to, uh, and continues on to rack up a significant amount of 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 of, uh, of kills. Not not in his Red Fokker triplane. He's still flying Albatross Scouts during this time. Um, 
by no, April 1918, at the end of the German spring offensive, his tally stood at 80. And it's worth to point out that the final 16 victories occurred over with a six-week period. Um, just in those final six weeks was when he was flying that, that Fokker triplane. <laughs> so we've come to assume that Richthofen spent his entire career in Fokker triplanes, and it's only within the last last six weeks of his life that he ultimately flies that the very famous famous machine that he's ultimately killed in. It would be remiss of us not to talk about the flight that ended his life, his last flight. Let's mm. do it briefly because I think it's been <laughs> we've it's been overdone. I mean, in, in your notes you said to me you said that too much has been written about uh, about the final chapter, but we should we should cover it briefly. So, what happened to Richthofen at the end? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, and if I don't do this this section of the story justice, you literally just need to go to a library and look at the you know the aviation section of the First World War, and I can guarantee you there will be there will be dozens of books on Richthofen's final flight. But but needless to say that on the 21st of April 1918, whilst flying an all-red Fokker DR1 with a serial number uh, 42517, Richthofen was mortally wounded and made a forced landing near Vosse-Somme around 11am. He had been locked in combat with Sopwith Camels uh, flying uh, from number number 209 Squadron Royal Air Force, uh, which the Royal Air Force at that, that time had recently formed from the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service. Um, he had been engaging uh, a Sopwith Camel by, uh, flown by a Canadian pilot by the name of uh, Wilfred May, and Richthofen himself was being hotly pursued by Captain Arthur Brown, or Roy Brown, who was a, another Canadian. Um, now... Richthofen, around this time, he seems not to sort of get into the sort of re-examining the, the final flight too much, but I think it's really important to say that Richthofen appeared to suffer from an uncharacteristic episode of target fixation here, so much so that he was focused so much on what may in following him over the British front and low down the Somme Valley that he sort of lost sense of what else was happening around him. Um, so Richthofen flies low along the River Somme over British lines and appeared at eye level to hundreds of Australian troops from the 3rd and 4th Australian divisions who are dug in on, on Moreland Corps Ridge. Um, what we know is that, that Richthofen is hit by a bullet that passed laterally through his chest. In fact, um, what we know is the, the fatal bullet crossed, uh, it entered um, beneath Richthofen's armpit, uh, right armpit, and then penetrated out below his left nipple. Um, so we suggest that he was the, that it was a ground shot, not a shot from behind that came from, from Brown. Uh, and Richthofen makes a controlled crash landing in a field along the, the Bray Corby Road, where ultimately he lands his aircraft and succumbed to his wounds almost immediately. We like to think that Richthofen had a long and distinguished flying career, and of course that's in some respects is measured by the fact he had 80 confirmed kills, but um, what... Australians and the British troops referred to as the Red Falcon, uh, was Manfred von Richthofen. He was finally down and dead at the age of just 25. I should also say that when we go to the Western Front, I mean, you led to us to the Western Front, Aaron, and I get over there occasionally as well. It's a great spot to go to on the on the banks of the Somme, and um, it's a very picturesque spot and um, is, is now marked as the spot where, where his plane came down. So we're fairly sure that he was now felled by Australians, aren't we, by that ground fire? Yeah, uh, I think that's, I think con convincing, uh, well, uh, before I go on, I should probably say that the, the Royal Air Force confirmed or gave Brown, uh, the credit of, of killing, um, of killing Richthofen. Uh, number 209 squadron 
RAF is still in existence. And uh, if you have a look at it, Squadron Crest, it actually is a Red Falcon falling from the sky in reference to, to Richthofen. So for many years, uh, the British had believed that he, or sorry, the Canadians uh, who were serving within the Royal Flying Corps, the Royal Air Force, had believed that, you know, they had brought down Richthofen. Uh, and, you know, that's a worthy claim. But I think uh, those who submitted claims, I think it's about six different people had submitted claims that they had brought down Richthofen. Um, mostly Australians, of course. Um, the Richthofen squadron had actually been engaged with um, uh, the twin seaters of number three squadron, AFC, during earlier that morning. And even some of the pilots and, and, and observers of that squadron even put in claims. Of course, that, that, that's, it was later found to be not, not the case. Uh, and, and, of course, a number of Australian ground troops, of course, submitted, submitted claims as well. So there is a lot of, there has been a lot of debate and discussion, almost 100 years of it. I mean, more attention, more ink has been spilt um, debating who killed Richthofen than actually looking at the totality of his life. And I think the most convincing book that I've, I've read is, is um, P.J. Carousella's book. Uh, I think it's uh, Who Killed the Red Baron or The Red Baron's Final Moments. Uh, it's a book from the 1960s. Uh, and it, and it, it, he went around at a time interviewing a lot of the men of the 3rd and 4th Australian divisions who put in, um, who made substantial and very compelling evidence in, in, um, in, in not only just who brought down the Red Baron, but then also to what happened to his kit and equipment. So um, I'll just mention uh, two two people um, who... Oh, I should probably say that, you know, I think this debate over who killed Richthofen really comes down to the fact that Richthofen was such a worthy aerial opponent, and for many it seemed more fitting that, that Richthofen be brought down in aerial combat against a worthy opponent, another fighter pilot, than just simply blundering into a veritable, veritable storm of Australian ground fire. I, I mean, the fact that Richthofen, you know, is this leading fighter pilot and he was killed from a fatal bullet from the ground, it almost seems as though, as it seems a little ignominious, I guess, it's sort of less heroic than the fact that Richthofen may have actually been brought down by a, another fighter pilot. But needless to say, I think uh, there's two strong Australian cases of, of guys who, uh, who who may have been uh, my may have fired the fatal shot. Uh, S- um, Sergeant Cedric Popkin of the 24th Machine Gun Company, or, or Gunner Robert Buey of the 53rd Battery of the 14th Field Artillery Brigade. Um, both of these guys are anti-aircraft gunners. They're trained in deflection shooting, that is, leading the aircraft so that when you fire the round, it actually meets up with the aircraft at the uh, more or less the right the right spot. And they're also fitted with anti-aircraft sites. But then also, too, there's also the possibility that any one of the thousands of Australians who were dug in on that position uh, at that time could have shouldered their Lee Enfield rifles and engaged Richthofen as he flew low across the Australian front. They could have also been responsible for his death. But at the end of the day, we're never going to know. What we do know is that Richthofen was down. He was 25 years old. And uh, certainly the German Germany had had lost one of their, their great national heroes at a very critical point in the war. And just finally, mate, in the collection of the War Memorial, there's, uh, there's some things that we know are associated with, uh, with Richthofen. What, what do you have in the collection that, uh, that speaks to you about, uh, about his life and death? Yeah, sure. Well, um, well, certainly we have more more objects in the collection that actually speak about his death, because as you say, the Australians were on site when the uh, when his Red Fokker triplane is brought down, and uh, they souvenir they they sort of basically sh- shred the uh, the triplane down to its uh, its its framework within a matter of about fifteen minutes. We have a, a Carl Bamberg compass that was removed by Sergeant Harold Tench of the forty first Battalion, um, which is probably one of the more iconic objects. I think Tench was. 
very and men of the 41st battalion were very conscious of the fact that um uh that even though these objects may be submitted to the Australian War Records section uh, for keeping or for safe safe housing for what would ultimately be the Australian War Memorial. They may disappear as souvenirs on some officer's desk further in, up further up the chain of command. So the compass is a really good one. Uh, it's uh, it actually talks about some of the technical uh, the, the technical pieces of kit that were fitted out within the Fokker triplane. Um, we've got uh, dozens of pieces of red fabric uh, allegedly from uh, Richthofen's aircraft, and I say that because uh, we know that we have. Of, uh, red fabric that's definitely from the aircraft because it's been verified in fact conservators and some of our staff in the 1990s actually had, took a very close example examination of the the weave count of of the genuine bona fide bits and pieces uh, that have excellent provenance so that we can then check that against fakes or stuff that isn't actually from Richthofen's aircraft pieces of uh, web belt uh, ammunition belt that's actually from the Spandau machine guns um, there's great photographs of of Australians of men of number three squadron Australian Flying Corps at uh, Poulonville Aerodrome the following day after Richthofen was was brought down, um, cradling these LMG machine guns. Um, it, there's often the assumption that the Australian War Memorial has them. We don't, um, but uh, they're, they're probably out there within the uh, within the um, either in private collections or in a museum somewhere. Um, most distinctly, we have uh, the Balkan Kloys, the the, Balk- the Baltic crosses that were from Richthofen's wings and fuselage. We've got two of them in the collection. One of which is on display in the memorial's First World War gallery. Um, of course, we have his flying, his modified uh, field modified flying control column, which was specifically uh, altered for Richthofen. It's interesting. There is a sort of a blip switch, um, which whenever the pilot presses that switch, the engine cuts out, and that's a way in which uh, pilots can easily uh, throttle the aircraft and for tighter turns or for or for landing. Richthofen actually had his blip switch moved so it's offset close to his um, his right thumb, uh, and there's other some more minor variations, but of course. Um, the control column itself has been smashed from the aircraft or from the from the crash itself, and that's that's currently also on display in the memorials first in the memorials galleries. We have his fur line flying overboots, um, which were made out of what appears to be deer fur, um, bearing in mind that pilots of the First World War were flying in open air cockpits, often at ten thousand feet. Um, so you know things can get quite brisk in an open air cockpit. So these guys were all done up in leather jackets and scarves and fur-lined overboots. Um, we've got both of them in the collection. One's in better state than the other, and those were taken off Richthofen's body uh, by members of Number 3 Squadron uh, not long, not long, just before he was buried by the Australians. There's also tons of little bits of aluminium and, and other bit, little small fragments of, uh, of, 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 strut, of wing strut that are purported to be from Richthofen. Of course, there's no way to determine whether a piece, small piece of aluminium cut from the uh, engine cowling or a piece of timber from an engine from one of those wing struts can be verified as being from Richthofen. So we actually look at um, the individual who may or may not have uh, taken that. So uh, in some cases, they're, they're clearly identified as members of of of, uh, of the the third or fourth brigades. Um, we know that the aircraft itself uh, crashed not too far away from the 11th brigade headquarters. So, so usually individuals associated with the 11th brigade generally have um, fairly strong claims as well. Um, so yeah, I mean the memorial has quite a quite a number of objects that are verified as being from Richthofen. I've talked about some of those objects which have been donated in the belief that they were from Richthofen, but of course some 
clearly are not, and some may be, but there's no way to try and find out. Um, one piece is uh, a piece of red and white uh, metal ribbon, um, which is consistent with that of the German first, uh, German second class of, of the second class Iron Cross, which was donated to the memorial in the belief that it was from to taken from Richthofen's uniform. Um, it could be. We don't know. There's no way to find out. Um, but there are also individuals who we know were involved in in some things, uh, such as the the medical examination of Richthofen's body that was that was carried out at Poulonville Airfield um, just before he was buried by the Australians for military honours at uh, near the Australian um, uh, Australia Corps headquarters at, at Betong. Um, there's some bits and pieces, uh, some. Uh, buckles and straps from Richthofen's flying overalls associated with key individuals who have been present for that medical examination. So there's a very strong link there. I want to, just by wrapping up um, in the collections that the memorial has, I want to talk about some of the fur line um, gloves that the memorial has in the collection that was believed to have been from Richthofen. Um, these have been in the memorial's collection since the mid-1990s, and they are of a private purchase Royal Flying Corps trigger pattern pair of gloves, um, which are said to have been from Richthofen. Um, our conservators very quickly discovered that the fur was, was kangaroo fur, and um, they were indeed British gloves. We know that Richthofen took trophies from his victims, such as that of Lano Hawker. Um, so it's not without the, beyond the realm of possibility that these could be the real deal. But eyewitnesses who are present uh, at the crash site and who describe uh, some of the objects and items that Richthofen had it on him at the time talk about a black pair of gloves. Uh, and in fact, some of that the, that uh, testimony is very inconsistent. Some say the gloves went to 11th Brigade headquarters. Some say the gloves went to uh, a sergeant who alleged to have bought down Richthofen. So, you know, what's the real deal? Um, digging through the, the collection notes, we realize that the gloves were uh, from an individual of number three squadron who had uh, played a key role in mounting uh, the guard over Richthofen's uh, body and, and, and aircraft. Um, a chap by the name of uh, of Joseph Sergeant Joseph Knapp. Um, Knapp had given these gloves to a friend, uh, and the friend's daughter had been the donor. And the belief, the donor said that the uh, her father had. Um, had uh, reskinned the gloves in kangaroo fur because the original otter fur, which would appear that the gloves were made out of some sort of black fur, um, you know, they had deteriorated to such a state that they had to he recover them in kangaroo fur in an attempt to restore them from their former glory. Uh, Nap appears in Carousella's book that I mentioned previously, and uh, he makes no mention of any of the items that he himself may have obtained from from Richthofen. And I'm have to say that Carousella became one of the one of the uh, the key collectors of. Richthofen material. He is the uh, the bona fide Richthofen boffin of the 1960s. That he uh, he had amassed such a collection that when he passed away, a lot of the Richthofen material that's now flooded into various collections all around the world have come from the Carousella collection. So Carousella didn't catch on to the fact that Nat may have actually had these gloves, which ultimately made their way into the memorial. Um, are they the real deal? Are they not? We don't know, but certainly there's there's evidence both ways. The best we can say that these gloves may potentially have been from Richthofen, but we just don't know for sure. Mate, just a fascinating story. All those elements of it uh, just make it uh, even more enriching. 
Thank you for taking the time. It's uh, I, I assume at, uh, at times you get a bit sick of talking about the Red Baron. So thank you for taking the time. It's been uh, really wonderful to hear your thoughts on it. Oh, look, uh, I don't tell oh, well, it's, well, it's my pleasure to come back on the show. But, um, you know, uh, I never get tired of, of, of talking about these things because uh, often behind myths and legends, there are real individuals behind them. And certainly those people, I mean, Rick Toffin, there's more to Rick Toffin's 25 years than just the way in which he met his death. And I think that uh, if anybody who's, who's interested in, in learning a little bit more about Rick Toffin uh, and the research that I've been doing into him, um, I wrote an article for a, a, a German history magazine run in the UK called Iron Cross Magazine. Uh, and uh, in the most, most recent issue, I wrote an article called Red Falcon Relics, looking at the, uh, the stories and objects behind some of the memorials uh, collection items relating to Rick Toffin, uh, also showcasing some of those items that we have from Second Lieutenant John Jack Hay uh, of Number 40 Squadron, who was Rick Toffin's 17th, uh, 17th aerial victim. Brilliant stuff, mate. I'd encourage everyone to get down to the War Memorial and check out those items for themselves. Also check out that article in Iron Cross Magazine. Um, and as always, Aaron, just a pleasure to catch up. Thank you so much for your time. My absolute pleasure, Matt. Thank you very much for having me on the show yet again. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.